folks. We are back for another installment of our everyday people, everyday stories, everyday lives during a global pandemic mini series. This is Brittany here, your host, and I'm super excited to be joined with Dr. Calvin Smith, Halen from Harry here for the HBCU um, Connect and Love. Um, more than anything, Calvin is a doctor in person, living and experiencing this global pandemic like all of us. And so we're going to talk a little bit more about what that has been like. Um, Calvin, Dr. Smith, I'm excited to have you. <laughs> excited to have you and um talk discuss whatever else kind of magic we'll make in the time that we have here sure. together um i've been kicking off just kind of asking our uh co-host guests to share a little bit more about who they are um and so i'll ask you you know who are you and what sort of aspects of those identity have really of your identity rather have really influenced how you're experiencing this moment in time. Sure. So my name is Dr. Calvin Miles Smith III. Uh, I'm originally from Atlanta, Georgia. Uh, today is my 41st birthday. Um, yeah. Keep hand clap, snap, something. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Appreciate it. I'm originally from Atlanta, Georgia. I grew up in Atlanta. Uh, my dad would say Atlanta born and Atlanta bred. He would finish it off by when I die, I'll be Atlanta dead. I'm not going to say that. I'll probably be <laughs> Nashville dead. But um, I went to Morehouse College uh, from 97 to 2001 and came to Meharry Medical College. Uh, I uh, finished Meharry Medical College and joined the internal medicine program here and uh, became chief resident, stayed on as teaching faculty, uh, took over as the clerkship director. And then most recently, I was uh, appointed as the assistant dean of admissions. So I'm uh, working with the, the young, bright doctors, uh, bringing them in and seeing what they're all about, uh, trying to recruit the, the best and the, the brightest from all, especially from our HBCUs, but from everywhere. Um, and uh, now my most recent task is uh, to work as a clinical site lead for one of our three uh, testing sites for COVID-19 here in Nashville uh, on behalf of Meharry and the city of Nashville. So um, that that has been the direct impact for me. Uh, for me, I, I haven't stopped working. I'm, I'm thankful, I'm blessed that I have a job, uh, but mm -hmm. I've been basically uh, testing, doing nasal pharyngeal swabs on uh, people and running the ship, teaching other people how to perform the nasal pharyngeal swabs and making sure the paperwork is correct and all that jazz. Um, and uh, we today we probably saw around 325 people, so we're averaging about 250 people per site. And uh, so, very busy, uh, you know, and we've seen some people that have been very, very sick. We've seen some people that have been asymptomatic. Uh, we've run the whole gamut, but uh, I'm, I'm, you know, I don't want to call myself a frontline worker because I really feel like the ER doctors are, you know, they're, they're there, you know what I mean? But uh, I'm out here trying to uh, work on uh, contact tracing and preventing the, the spread of disease. But that's me. Um, and you know what? Before you go even further, I just want to say, we appreciate, um, just collectively appreciate the work that you are doing on the ground, on the front lines, especially in service of, um, you know, our communities, which as we have, we have learned and continue to hear are disproportionately 
you know, impacted um, yeah. for various reasons. And so I'd be curious, um, what has it been like, you know, on the on the front lines? What, ha what has it been like as a doctor, medical care provider, advocate? Um, what has it been like for you during this time, <laughs> this space of time? It's been a mix of emotions. It's been exciting at times, scary slash harrowing at times. It has been frustrating, uh, particularly now is, you know, as, as the states have opened up and people are back out, uh, you know, kind of as if COVID did not exist. Uh, you know, it's frustrating, but also it's been very fulfilling. And, and you know, uh, we've received a lot of uh, accolades and kudos, especially from the people in our neighborhood. Uh, in, in North Nashville, which has meant a lot to me because one of the, the real big reasons why I stay at Meharry beyond the students is also that community in North Nashville of uh, majority majority African-Americans, you know, uh, people from different ranges in the spectrum of socioeconomic backgrounds. But, you know, a lot of them are, are uh, in the lower end of that and, you know, have been disproportionately affected by health care uh, problems and and have had lack of access to, to good health care. So. To help them out means a whole lot, and you know, just uh, just a mix of emotions. I'm, I'm, you know, like today was a frustrating day for me, but I'm, I'm overall, I'm happy. Yeah, yeah, and I think there's a lot of, you know, it's been interesting. I did a post um, a couple, maybe like two weeks ago, when states started to entertain the idea of opening up. Mm-hmm. And it was cause for a pause because I felt like it was literally on the heels of us learning that black communities, brown communities were disproportionately impacted. And so when we think about like just sort of the timeline of like mainstream like narratives, it started yeah. out as, okay, this pandemic is all the way over there across, mm -hmm. the, pond, you know, across the pond, it was especially from a US perspective. And then it came, you know, once the narrative was a bit closer to home, it was, well, it's only older people um, who are disproportionately impacted. And so there were a lot of like measures and a lot of guidance put into place. And then mm -hmm. as things started to, you know, we started to learn and track race data, or I'm sorry, as people started to call for the imperative of tracking race data, right? right we learned that, um, it wasn't just, or the face of COVID was not an older white person. Right. Um, those fatalities were not just, you know, these older um, white communities who travel abroad and that, mm -hmm. the, you know, the face of fatality was in fact communities who were already impacted by just sort of systemic environmental racism, what have you. Yep. It's almost and like they after. Everybody wants to open. Yeah, yeah. They got the green light to go. And, you know, and meanwhile, we are we are continuing to suffer. It's funny you should mention that uh, our, our president of our college, Dr. James Hildreth, has been one of the more outspoken people in terms of uh, representing, uh, you know, uh, the, the disproportionate effect on the African-American community. He, he spoke today um, on Capitol Hill and, um, you know, was speaking directly to that about racial disparities. And, you know, trying to have it's good that we have a, a stakeholder, a voice at the table, but it's even better when people listen. And, you know, this is happening in a, a period of time where there's an election coming up and we would hope that, you know, people are seeing the response to their local 
politicians and really, you know, understanding the effect that they can have even locally, even if you don't, you know, there's been some controversy about things that have happened in the presidential race. And let's just put that out the window. Let's talk about locally, you know, your congressman, your your senator, your uh, the people that represent you in your community, your aldermen, whoever, you know, this is the time to see what they're doing and let your voice be heard from that capacity, you know, because uh, it is people like us. And, you know, uh, I got to be frank, a lot of us have skepticism about voting and my vote doesn't matter and all this kind of thing. Well, you know, just in your community, just get those people out that, that don't care for you, that haven't stopped by to see how you're doing, that, you know, have the business interests of like the big, big business in mind and, and, and less about the constituents that are living day to day. Get those, get those, start there. You know what I mean? Get the, get the turtle guy from Kentucky out of there. You know, that'd be mm -hmm. a good start. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah. And, um, you talk like, so I, so I, I think it, uh, um, one, us more broadly recognizing like our own agency and power and how we can influence this politically. Um, I also think about just information and misinformation. Right? Yes. Yes. And the power of social media in this, because I'm, it's just yeah. like, so I even thought about when we began having the um, race conversation, there was a lot of focus on sort of just like individual level influences. And so there was a lot of focus on like, you know, um, diseases that are, you know, prevalent in black or black communities without necessarily like also shining the light on or highlighting the systemic influence and structures that are why a lot of these sort of like disparities exist right and so when yeah. you think about close contact with people that's because we're disproportionately you know in environments where renting apartments you know subsidized housing when we think about how um some of uh pre-existing conditions influence you know, you know, fatality. Yeah. We can't talk about that without also talking about biases that exist in healthcare and like how they show up um, in treatment, right? And so I just wonder just your perspective on all of that and what it even means to be, and this might be heavy, kind of like what it means, what it, what it means for you to be a black man kind of experiencing this, a black man who kind of is hyper aware of all yeah. that is going on from a um, practice perspective, but then even just experiencing it, right? Yeah. As, as, as a black man specifically, you know, my role, I look at, I take my role very seriously because all the studies that I've looked at in terms of uh, how patients relate to their physicians and other things like that show that a patient that is congruent with the doctor, in other words, comes from the same socioeconomic background or, you know, uh, from the same racial background, those outcomes are better. Um, I was blessed to go to Meharry Medical College uh, and where, you know, we were taught to treat everyone uh, equally, regardless of their disease condition, regardless of where they come from. And there are even medical textbooks that say African-American people have higher thresholds for pain. And, you know, people practice this way. You look at people as famous as Serena Williams, uh, who had to undergo like a traumatic childbirth, you know. Uh, because the belief is that, you know, she she's faking it if she's asking for pain medication. You know what I mean? Meanwhile, you know, uh, we can give pain medications liberally to, to people who probably have a higher risk of becoming addicted to them. Um, you know, so it, for a black male, it really like I want to impact 
the people behind me. I'm all, I'm a big pay it forward guy. Mm-hmm. I was my my schooling. Uh, I had gap years. I had some time where my father got sick and I took some time off. And uh, I wasn't the best student. I was not near the best student. I was probably at the very bottom of my class for many, many years. And uh, I was saved by our dean of students, Dr. Pamela C. Williams, who has since passed away. But she basically took me and, you know, gave me a reality check and gave me a second chance. With that second chance, I wanted to emulate her example and be that for people that come behind me, because the, the gift that I have, I mean, it's, it's an awesome task. And I mean, awesome in both sense of the word, like awesome in terms of like, yes, I enjoy it, but also awesome in that it is, it, it's like, it can be overwhelming at times mm-hmm. how much you have, you know, in, in, that you're responsible for. You know, I, I want to get to the point in my clinic, my goal is that I can start seeing patients, treating patients preventatively so that, I'm not prescribing medications. I don't make any money from the big pharma. I don't have any interest in them. I don't I don't go to the dinners. I don't do anything with that kind of stuff. You know what I mean? I I don't get extra money from insurance companies. I I'm on a salary from a Harry Medical College, which is a whole different ball game. And I like to be very transparent with my patients and tell them those kind of things and let them know, you know, that I am aware of things like the Tuskegee experiment. And uh, things that happen with uh, with sexually transmitted diseases in in Nashville, Tennessee, and the different experiments that were done at various large institutions in Nashville, and the things that were done to African Americans, you know, uh, in the name of advancing medicine, you know, mm-hmm. and there's real distrust there, and it's it's earned. It should be there, and a big part of my job is to try to build that trust back up by being factual, as you mentioned, giving good information educating, talking to my patients and, and not talking down to them, not pandering to them. You know what I mean? Because like people think, you know, if you have a certain level of education, oh, that, that corresponds to your intelligence. And that's not the case at all. There are many, many people that have, you know, not finished school. They have, you know, there are people on the other end of the spectrum. They're educated fools. There are people out there that have degrees and terminal degrees that can't tie their shoes. You know what I mean? They're not functional. So, you know, I don't, I don't. I come in there with no preconceived notions as much as I can, and I try to meet patients where they are and mm-hmm. talk to them about trust, talk to them about education, putting it in their hands, letting them know, you know, this is what you can do, this is what I'll do, and we work together as a team to help, you know, to help make you enjoy the quality of your life. Because at the end of the day, that's what it's all about. This thing right here is a serious disruption of our quality of life. Can't leave your house. And, you know, people, I, I know people that are introverts that love being at home, but they kind of like the option of being at home. You know what I mean? They don't want a forced being at home. They want to be able to, uh, to get an invitation to something and chill and say, no, I'm good. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. We don't even have that option right now. And it's not normal. It's not, it's not something that we should adjust to. Uh, you know, we are adjusting to it because human beings are, are remarkably resilient. God has gifted us with the ability to, to adapt and to, you know, to the worst conditions, we can make the most of it. But it's not normal. It's not, this, is, this is something that, you know, we've asked a lot of the population of the United States. And, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm happily surprised at, some, at how much we've been able to do. But I'm just holding on for just a little, a little more. Just, you know, keep, let's stay under that curve for just a little bit longer. Mm-hmm. And, you know, get, get ourselves together. And, and the economy's suffering. Nobody wants, you know, I mean, we're, we're looking at probably a prolonged uh, um, uh, recession, if not a depression, after this thing. But you know, at what cost for lives? You know what I mean? Like it, money, 
you know, these billionaires, they have so much money, much money that they don't know what to do with it. And yet they want more. You know what I mean? And other people are just out here working, busting their humps so they can, you know, go on vacation with their kids or, you know, be able to enjoy a nice dinner, you know, uh, to, to not have to worry about, you know, making a decision about the lights versus the gas, you know, versus the water bill. You know, it's, it's so there's so many disparities out there and people have lost the ability to uh, to to have compassion, to think about yeah, their yeah. fellow man. Mm-hmm. You know, it, even something as simple as wearing a mask, because wearing a mask actually doesn't benefit oh. you as much as it benefits the people around you. Exactly. And if we would consider that, I think, you know, but people are saying, oh, you know, uh, it's uncomfortable, you know, wearing it under the nose. And I mean, it's just, you know, yeah. it defeats the purpose and, it, and it's inconsiderate. It's inconsiderate of your fellow man. And I wish we could get to the point where we think about, you know, and trust that other people are thinking about you and we can we can do better that way. But, you know, we fight an uphill battle in that regard. That is such a I feel like that's a really just connecting something as simple but impactful as wearing a mask back to like what compassion looks like. And so the act of caring for relieving someone else's like pain or the probability of them, you know, being hurt. Like, it's just such a, a simple, practical thing. And it's so interesting that that has become a form of, I'm just going to call it how I interpret it. Like people feeling as though wearing a mask is like manufactured oppression. Like now I have to wear this mask. You are like imposing on my rights. It's so bizarre to me. Yeah. Yeah. It's almost as if people are seeking, uh, seeking something that they can, they can relate to a struggle they can relate to. Right. Uh, when in fact, this is, I mean, it's, it's nothing as compared to some of the struggles that, that people are undergoing right now. You know what I mean? Yeah. Lack of um, access. Yeah. Like, it's, it's interesting. And so to hear you even call that out, it's like, that, this is what the folks love, like practical things. Compassion on a day-to-day during a global pandemic looks like wearing a mask. Wearing a mask even though you don't feel like it. Wearing a mask even though you feel as though um, it is unnecessary or is an over-exaggerated. Just do it because this is yeah. what it looks like on a daily. That's how you care for others. Yeah. I had a mask on for, for eight hours today, and, and the first thing I did, I get into the, in my car, is rub the back of my ears because, you know, it's pulling there. And, I mean, it's, you know, like, it's it's not comfortable. But I I know what I'm doing. I know how many people I've been around that potentially have this disease. I know what the purpose is and, and why I'm doing it. So for me, that supersedes the comfort, you know, the temporary discomfort that I have. So, One thing yeah. that you brought up that I think is so relevant is just the um, history behind just cross-cultural mistrust, which is valid. You referenced the Tuskegee experiment. So I wonder, as someone on the front lines of testing, like what has been like the reaction to testing? <laughs> How how does that you know trust factor play into what you've been experiencing in your so I, I've had people from all races, ages, genders ask me if I'm implanting a chip into their head, uh, you know, like asking me, are we making up the numbers? You know, I mean, there people have concerns about this. Was this something that came out of a lab from like Bill Gates, like? You know, uh, I haven't had too many 5G questions, but people have asked me just about all the conspiracy questions that, that I can think of. And, you know, my my answer to most of them has been, you know, well, you know, this has caused a major disruption in so many facets of life. 
and people, you know, it's been so random as to who has died and who hasn't died. Who would do something like this? You know what I mean? What kind of sinister cabal and what is the end goal? It doesn't make sense for it. You know, I mean, people are people are dying in all walks of life. Um, you know, I have uh, there was, you know, the test is an uncomfortable test. I don't know. If, have you had it done? I haven't. So walk okay. us through it. Like, what, what is the yeah, what's involved in the test? So, it's like a flu swab on steroids. So, you know, in a flu swab, they go into I your nostrils. I've had a flu swab, yes. Okay. So this has to go further into your nostrils, way to the back, almost to the back of your throat. Now, it, you can accomplish the same thing by going into the mouth and going to the back of the throat, but that would elicit a gag reflex. That would make people vomit. So uh, it's it's actually more comfortable to go that way, but it's it goes far. And how I describe it to patients, because I had it done myself too, is that it feels as though you have salt water up your nose. It's going to make your eyes water and burn just a bit. That's exactly how it feels. Uh, and, you know, I try to not lodge it in there. Like I saw a brutal video that uh, I love Rex Chapman on, on, on Twitter. I follow him. But I was so disappointed. He posted this brutal video of somebody that stuck a swab in, the, in, a, in a soldier's nose, left it there for like 10 seconds, then pulled it out. That, we don't, we don't, you know, I don't operate that way. We try to, I really am cognizant of patient's comfort and try to, uh, to, to to really perform the test in a compassionate, again, compassion, you know, having experienced that, I, I like to, I'm very descriptive to my patients, to people in general. I like for them to know what they're about to experience so that, you know, uh, they can prepare themselves, but also so they can build some trust and know that, you know, there's no intentional harm being done to you. Mm -hmm. uh, I've had to swap children as young as two months old. And I, wow. I have to be honest, like I go home and those are the roughest ones for me. I hate doing the kids because like, I feel like they're going to grow up and hunt me down and, and try to, you know, I've traumatized them. Um, you know, it's, it's not a fun test. And, and, you know, I'm saying that from the perspective of me performing. So I really, you know, it's really kind of a place of privilege for me to be feeling this way. But also, I mean, it, it, it does affect me. I feel, you know, I feel as though I'm, I'm causing trauma, uh, but I know it's a greater good to it. And to the to the point of like trust and everything like that, you know, giving people information and putting the power to them, letting them know exactly how to obtain their labs, exactly why I'm doing what I'm doing. So I don't have to repeat the test so I can get a good specimen, you know, and that showing them that it's coming from a sterile. I always make a point to show them that it's coming from something that's unopened. I open mm -hmm. it right in front of them. Uh, you know, uh, I, I, I walk them through every single step, you know, and, and, and when it's done, I cap it off right in front of them. I don't hide any aspect of it because I, all of that matters. You know what I mean? People are watching you. I've had people record me. I usually request they record the process and not me. But, mm -hmm. you know, I, I understand where they're coming from because they want evidence that, you know, if something goes awry, look, you know, this is the person that did this to me. And this is, you know, this is what happened to me. And, and I get it, you know, but all that comes from that background of, of uh, mistrust and, and distrust and, you know, from people that are unethical, they have created a baseline for us where we have to overcome. And it's not a whole lot of people. There's never a whole lot of people that are negative, but those voices are always the loudest and, and have the most profound impact. So, you know. Uh -huh. um, quick question around the test. And I'm, this is a selfish question because they have recently opened up public testing sites in Maryland. Okay. And so I've been wondering, because there's been a, a, a huge response, I was told that there was like a two mile, some of them are drive through even, so there's like, there was like a two mile backup. And it got yeah. me to thinking about, you know, should everyone be getting a test? Is it one of those things where, 
um, it is or should be proactive or should it be reactive to you feeling a certain way, coming in contact with certain people? What are your I, thoughts I, on that? Understand that my answer that I'm about to give is, is, is a conflict of interest for me. Okay. Because it creates more work for me. But yes, absolutely, patient people who have not been exposed or who, who feel as though they have not been exposed, who have no symptoms, those are the prime people who should be getting tested right now because those are the people that are spreading the disease the most. And so in order to do uh, that, that, that concept of con uh, contact tracing, it's so important. Contact tracing is going to be, it, we're looking at several months to like maybe two years before we can get a vaccine for this, if we can get a vaccine at all. Contact tracing is going to be the key to really containing and controlling this thing. This is what was done in South Korea, what was done in uh, Singapore. A lot of the Asian countries were able to pinpoint, you know, like the, there was that story about the young man or young lady who went to church and spread it at that church. But they were able to pinpoint that one patient, patient zero, and contain them in their contacts, and they were mm -hmm. able to stop the spread in its tracks. You know, we value here in America, and rightly so, we value our freedoms. You know, we value our liberty. Uh, it's important. It's a fine line that we walk. With that being said, you can't have freedom or liberty if you're dead. And, you know, if your your family members are profoundly affected, you know, I mean, and we're not just talking about people survive, but people have lasting impacts. People have been on the ventilator for 14, 15, 16 days. That mm -hmm. changes everything. If you've been in the ICU for longer than two weeks and, and specifically been under anesthesia for that long, you are never the same. You mm -hmm. have uh, there are there are studies that show you the ICU effect is very real, and uh, you know it, it profoundly affects your 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 mind state. You have post traumatic stress. You have mm -hmm. you know dreams. You have uh, uh, you have just your your stress levels are high. Your anxiety is high all the time. And it all stems from, you know, that that critical care period where some very traumatic things are occurring to you. You know what I mean? Uh, things that are unnatural. These things are not natural. What we do to prolong life and to survive, these things are not natural. You're not meant to have a tube down your throat. You're not mm -hmm. meant to have tubes in your arteries, in your veins, you know, collecting blood and, and, and placing medications that, that change your blood pressure and clamp down and, like, you're not supposed to have, these things are not normal. We're mm -hmm. dealing with unprecedented times. And, and so, you know, even that, that, what we call morbidity, the quality of life afterward, it's, it's significant. I have a very good friend of mine. Um, it's a brother of my best friend, but he's also my really good friend who is a survivor. He was on the ventilator for about 16 days wow. uh, and to have dialysis for about a week or so after that. And by the grace of God, he's home. Uh, still doing rehabilitation, still having to go through dialysis, uh, and we're hopeful that this this process will end for him. But you know, significantly changed. I mean, he's lost weight, and this is not weight like losing weight. Like oh, I'm happy about losing weight. This is muscle yeah. man. This is yeah. you know, like his facial structure has changed. All these kind of things, and his and and talking to him, you know, I mean, he's there, but there is a a, a veneer there. You know what I mean? There's yeah. a piece of him is not back yet. You know what I mean? And he has young children, you know, he has a wife that has been by his side, you know, from, from day zero. And, you know, the amount of dedication that she, you know, when I was on the phone with him, I, was, I had to give props to her. Like, look, you, you, you are what a wife is all about. You've been with this man and, and continue to be with him, bringing him through this situation. 
it's changing his life inalterably. Um, and that's what we need to think about in terms of like trying to prevent this thing, make sure people don't have to go through that. Um, it's, it's not, it's not, it's not something that is, is a joke. It's not something that is to be trifled with, you know, and, and when you act as though, you know, you are immune to it and you are free willy nilly to do what you want to do. It's an insult to those that have been through it. And, and, you know, again, a lack of compassion. You don't have compassion for your fellow man. Mm -hmm. Look at it. Yeah, one thing that I um I don't want to assume that people know some of the terms that we use in. So contact tracing, what okay. exactly does that mean? So contact tracing is looking at uh, we we have what we call patient zero. We're looking for the person that started an inoculation of the disease or the spread of the disease. The person that is the the what we call the vector. They carry the disease. They don't manifest any symptoms of it. They walking mm -hmm. around. They feel good but they have the disease and everybody that gets in contact with them because of how, how strong this desire for this virus spread is. This, this virus has a high virulence factor. Um, it, it's up there with the measles in terms of like, if you are exposed to it, you are very, very, very likely to, to, get, to get it. Uh, so, you know, the, the, we try to, to isolate that person and then everybody that they have been in contact and then everybody, those people have been in contact and it works like kind of like a phone tree or like okay. one of those little diagrams where you see the, the family tree. It spreads mm -hmm. out and it's time dependent. So, you know, if, for instance, let's say we have a church service today and I go to church and there are 45 people in church and I shake hands with 10 of them, right? Mm -hmm. What we want to isolate, we want to find out, okay, I went to church, and, and two hours later, I want, they, they should know who I shook hands with and who they shook hands with, and where do they go, who do they see, what do they do, who do they breathe on, who do they talk to, and if we can pinpoint those people and, and, and stop it and nip it in the bud, we can help contain a, a virus that spreads this way, you know. And notice I said contain because really, like, at the end of the day, this is something that until we come up with either a, a reasonable treatment or a cure for, or a vaccine, uh, we're gonna be seeing this thing. It's new, it's brand, it's a, they use that term novel a lot, especially at the very beginning. Mm -hmm. uh, novel means that it's brand new, it's never been exposed to human beings. And that's why so many people, when they see it, get sick, because your body has absolutely no defense for it. It's an open door. Mm -hmm. Your body says, okay, we never, we don't recognize you, but your body generally is like, okay, there's a lot of things we don't recognize that are beneficial, we let it in, right? So. The body let this one in and it went haywire. It, it started, and, and I always, the comparison I make with viruses in terms of how they act, is like they act like a rogue copy machine. They get into your, uh, into your DNA and then they start making copies of itself. Like boom, mm -hmm. instead of making copies of energy cells and of, you know, your, your, your hair cells and all these other kind of things, it's making copies of itself. And crazy. And when it does that, your body flips out, it goes into an immune response. And the killer here with COVID is that the immune response has been so exaggerated that it's almost like how, you know, when people are on chemotherapy, how the, the, the chemotherapy attacks the, own, the person's own body, your cells are attacking itself. They're going gotcha. crazy, causing clotting, causing, you know, uh, fevers that are just off the, off the, you know, off the charts and, you know, essentially like burning, boiling people, you know, like it's not, not to that extent, but it's it's too high temperatures. The temperatures are are not compatible with life, and the 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 clotting cascade it just goes into overload. And it's like okay, we're we're gonna stop this, at, at nip this in the bud, and even if that means cutting off the kidneys, blood supply, so be it. You know, then that's what we're dealing with, and and we've never seen anything like this. 
ever. Like we've seen, you know, like the measles was was something that took a lot of people out. You know what I mean? And it was something that we, you know, dealt with for years and years and years. Uh, we we've seen things like uh, I'm trying to think of another situation like the Spanish flu is a real good example mm-hmm. because we're following almost an exact footprint of the Spanish flu. Spanish flu occurred in 1918. Uh, there was an outcry from the from society. People were shunned for not wearing masks. All these kind of things. The same things we're doing now. And there was a, a, a peak that happened in the summer, and it, it went down. And then in the winter, almost triple cases. Mm. Almost triple cases. And we're following that blueprint because of the, the, the desire, the need to, to open back up the economy. And what happened after the Spanish flu? We had a depression. You know mm. what I mean? We're following in the exact same footsteps, and we're making the same mistakes that we made in the past. It's like we didn't learn a single thing from what we experienced. Been forgotten. Mm-hmm. There's this um. So I always bring up um the West African phrase or symbol like Sankofa and like uh-huh. how right like yeah. so folks don't want to assume everybody knows but Sankofa if you've seen it visually portrayed it's a bird looking at its back its tail. Mm-hmm. Um, but the translation is it's not taboo to go back and fetch what we forgot. Underscoring like what Dr. Smith said here, we could be, we could, there's so much to understand, to learn, relearn, to like interrogate and maybe like course correct if we really leaned into like the past, the history um, that is before us. And we don't do enough of, I mean, I feel like that is a, such a common place when we like even just think about equity and injustice more broadly, right? Yeah. How yeah. much we could be learning. Yeah. For us, it's so much trauma associated with it. And for yeah. them, there's shame. And and both of That's those so both of those lead to fear. You know what I mean? So we have a fear of looking back because, you know, they are ashamed of what they've done, don't want to own it. We have trauma. We don't want to relive that past yeah. that we've lived. And so, you know, and it, and it goes in almost every scenario, like, you know, unless you have an unflinching eye and it's hard, you know, it's like therapy, going to therapy and, and, and opening up and being real about your feelings is, is the hardest thing you can do because it, it calls for accountability. And, Hello. you know, we, mm-hmm. yeah, we, we, we struggle with accountability. We want to put things on other people as much as we can shift the blame to, to other people when we have to do a good moral inventory of our own, our own situation and say, look, you know, what is the part that I play in this and how, what things can I control? The things that I can control are the things, my reaction to things. And so, you know, if you think about things from that perspective, it, it, it makes it easier to, to accept and to take, be accountable for what you've done. But, you know, if you don't want to do that, uh, if you want to, don't want to do that hard work, then you end up uh, manifesting in negative ways. And yeah. You know, it, and you don't control. The biggest thing is you don't control it. You, it comes out of you in in road rage episodes. It comes out of you in in dog leash, uh, uh, dog whistling. Uh-huh. You know what I mean? It comes out in you in in, in uh, stepping on somebody's windpipe. You know what I mean? Because you don't know. You can't control your fear. You can't control your reaction. You know, you lose control. People, the people that are supposed to be the main de-escalators. They come into a situation with fear and lose all control. And so all, the only thing they have left is to shoot a gun, is to, to 
to apply force, to apply deadly force so that they can regain control, i.e. decrease the fear that they have. I love the um, emphasis on accountability, right? And so even in our work, you know, just the term kind of like, uh, especially like equity work and the role that white people play in equity work, a lot of times we use the term like ally, right? My yeah. friends we started using the term like power broker getting at, you know, essentially getting to the fact that accountability looks like you, for one, understanding the history, how it has influenced sort of your social power, how yep. you show up in a system dominated by whiteness and white supremacy. And then furthermore, like how you course correct that in your day to day. Right. A lot of that has to do with your interactions and things like political power, political engagement, yep. what you're putting out in your social media sphere, like what narratives you're uplifting over others, you deciding whether or not you want to go get you wanting to get your nails done or on an outing is more important than the lives, you know, lives every time, just all those incremental shifts. And then on the, when we talk about just sort of our community, just under one, just like understanding trauma and recognizing and naming as a real thing so that we aren't necessarily like colluding with messages or narratives that suggest we're inherently like less than or unworthy of, like, nah, it's like much broader forces systems at play and then yep. how do we work as a collective to your point work through it and then hold ourselves accountable it's yeah. it's like and it's all connected um yeah, absolutely one thing that i heard and just sort of just tracked and how you when you were respond when you were just sharing more about your work um like i could really just sense the just the, the passion and um how assumption here like emotionally connected you are like to the work that you do and yeah. so this conversation for the folks who are listening to this is on the heels of Ahmaud Arbery this th this past week we learned of another um white woman using her um power to essentially put a black man's life in jeopardy she yep. called the police yeah um lied on him yeah. said that her name is Amy Cooper, said that she was being threatened uh -huh. and um, needed needed help right away, which is essentially in this society a death. That's a death yeah. threat. Like that's like yeah. attempted murder in some from, from African American man. She made she put emphasis on that and raised her raised the tone of her voice. You yeah. know, I mean like she yeah. was it was textbook. It was almost as if she couldn't control that reaction. Yeah. Right. And just the onslaught, and then today we learn about Minnesota. So yeah. at, the, at the time of recording, 526, we're learning about a police officer um, using accessible force and, I believe, killing another um, uh, a black man yeah. in the street. Yeah. Kind of like So my question um, is just from like, so just like from a care perspective, just kind of like managing the toll of you obviously being a care provider, yeah. but then also, you know, experiencing this world as an everyday yeah. person, black person, yeah. like what does like, the whole care conversation just look like for you? Because I think that's relevant to a lot of people who consider themselves on the front lines in various yeah. ways. Yeah. Um, I, what does that look like for you? I view police brutality and, and, and you know, uh, violence in the community as a public health epidemic. That's what it is. It's a public health epidemic. And, uh, you know, we it's out of control uh, and patients are suffering in ways that are not directly related to the things that happen to them, i.e. 
you know, a big, it's not even a theory, a big uh, understanding of the physiology of the body for me is your circulating levels of uh, a chemical called cortisol, okay? Cortisol is naturally produced by your body, by the adrenal glands. Uh, it helps you in times of stress, you know, do what you need to do, okay? But if your cortisol is always up, your body responds in negative ways. And, it, and the two biggest ways are increased blood sugar, increased mm. blood pressure, right? When we talk about African-American communities, what is disproportionately affecting us? Our blood pressure and the sugar diabetes, right? So, you know, if you really just take a second to think about the high stress levels and, and you know, like a friend of mine asked me if I wanted to go bungee jumping or uh, uh, what do you call the thing? Skydiving. And I told him, no, I'm, I'm, my level of cortisol is always running in the baseline for me. I don't need that extra stress. I don't need to, I don't need that to feel alive, mm -hmm. you know what I mean? Which is bad. Uh, but that's, that's where, and, and so in my encounters with patients, I always, always, always address their mental health. I always ask them, especially during this period of time, how are you coping mentally? How are you feeling? Acknowledging that this is not normal, that you know, uh, they they should not be trying to adjust to this as much as they are to try to survive and live through it. You know what I mean? Uh, and, and to be cognizant of that. Uh, well before Ahmaud Aubrey, I was asking my patients, was it safe for them to, I, you know, we have to talk about exercise, diet and exercise. Those are the guidelines, right? Mm -hmm. For my patients, it's not just about being able to exercise. Is it safe in your neighborhood to go and run? Mm -hmm. You know, it can be as simple as that. Can you walk around your neighborhood? And I'm not just talking about black neighborhoods. We always like to throw black on black crime. Well, white on white crime numbers parallel black on black crime. We mm -hmm. we kill the people around us. That's what mm -hmm. you know. That's what it is. Mm -hmm. So we need that narrative doesn't fly with me. But you know the dangers in our neighborhoods inherently. You know we need to know about that. Is it safe for your kids to to drive around your neighborhood without being profiled? You know, like what what are your day to day stressors and how is it affecting your health? Because at the end of the day, it's going to affect your health. It's gonna, mm -hmm. it's not, I take a holistic approach. It's not just, you know, a disease process and a medication. Disease process and a medication. Use these medications to control this disease process and a vicious cycle occurs, right? No, it's about change, making sustainable changes to your life. And I'm not gonna, you know, if I got somebody that's been smoking a pack of cigarettes a day for 40 years, I'm a fool if I think this guy's just gonna quit cold turkey or this mm -hmm. young lady or whoever. I'm, I'm a fool to think that's gonna happen. Mm -hmm. And if I'm not doing my part to help them to 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 do that, I put them on a fool's errand. It's, I put them on a, a task that's impossible, and, and I set them up for failure. So, recognizing my role as a healthcare provider in this this public health crisis that we are, are going through, recognizing you know, and I hate 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 hate, and I I, I don't like the word hate, but I hate mm -hmm. when people say colorblind or I don't see color, right. because that is that is part and parcel with why we are going through the things we're going through. Mm -hmm. You need to acknowledge the color and acknowledge that this is what is causing certain, even if you feel like you don't act this way. And you notice the first thing that this woman and Ann Cooper and her apology said was, I'm not racist. She wants to disavow <laughs> herself of that, right? Mm -hmm. But all of her actions show otherwise. And so, you know, maybe own up to it. Say, hey, I have some fear of this African-American male and I need to re-examine this before, uh -huh. you know, and think about the effect I might have on his life. And maybe, you know, as soon as she put that leash on that dog, what did he do? Say goodbye, went away. He just, uh -huh. he wanted her to obey the law, which is uh -huh. what they always tell us. Well, if you just comply, if you just obey the law, you know, to ask, ask her, God forbid that her dog in, in an area where there are birds that are, uh -huh. you know, rare species and all this kind of thing, 
know, just just has a dog running around willy nilly. A dog's instinct is to chase and hunt down birds. A lot of these dogs, the dogs, the cocker spaniel, the cocker spaniel is gonna chase. That's that's what they do. That's their breed. They don't even. A lot of people don't even understand the breed of dog they're dealing with, but love those dogs more than they love the the, the life of a, a fellow human being. And that's you know. But then you saw the base instinct that she had at the end of it. She's basically choking the dog too because she has so much fear. Like, it, I mean, like the, that's powerful. Yeah, yeah. It. Um. I love what you said about the. What would an apology have looked like? Owning up to right, and so in some ways, I believe that not even in some ways, in all ways, denial is essentially like the heartbeat of racism. Yeah. And that if you're not even going to own up to, not just seeing color, but judging yeah. on the basis of and recognizing that. That is something that um, happens, and in this moment or in this scenario, not only happened but caused harm. Yes, we can never yeah. even get to cures or solutions or actions, right? Well, every, yeah, you have to be a stakeholder in it, and and right now, Holder. they're not they're not stakeholder. And I, when I say they, I'm speaking of racists and people who are apathetic to racism. Um, they, yeah. Mm-hmm. They're not stakeholders. It doesn't affect them directly. You know, it doesn't affect their bottom line. They have managed to avoid being around people of color. Uh, the people of color that they're around, oh, you're different. You, that's you know, I when I when I realized my role in in all of this is I was training at the VA hospital, and I don't want to be smirched to people out there because I truly believe this is more ignorance than anything else. But I'll never forget one of the nurses there said, "Well, you're not like a lot of these other black people." And expected me to take that as a compliment and didn't understand my almost fury and wrath at that. Like, you know, well, you know, I come from, you know, I went to Westlake High School in Atlanta, Georgia, which was 99.9% black. Grew up with people that lived in the Bolt Rock housing projects. Grew up with people that lived in Kimberly Court. uh, Lived in a house where, you know, and, and God forbid, I hope my mom doesn't get upset with me for saying this, but she had to make decisions about the lights versus the gas bill. Mm-hmm. And there were times where we had to, you know, warm up the water, you know, and, and put it in the bathtub. And, you know, and so we went. Or we had to go stay at, at, at Cousin Sandy's house, you know, with with because the lights were off. You know what I mean? So I'm not far, I'm not so far removed from that. And I never will be like I am my brother. Like, that's me. So when you mm-hmm. when you say I'm not like them, no, I'm exactly like them. And if you open your eyes and get to know more people like me and see the humanity in people like me, but when you when you don't when you're not around people of color, you can dehumanize them really easily and turn them into a, a disease process, turn them into like call them a crackhead, call them uh, with with, uh, with immigrants, call them uh, you know uh, call them an immigrant instead of what who they are, you know. Um, I, I do stuff just at the simple level of like when nurses, when I used to work as a hospitalist and nurses would call me about a patient, they'd call about a patient in a room, blah, blah, blah. i say, what is the patient's name? You know what I mean? And just to humanize people so that I recognize that like this is the patient's, because this could be their worst day of their life. You know what I mean? They, you don't know, just, just that touching and being in touch with people as human beings and recognizing that they are not a disease process, it's not the person with AIDS. But this is, you know, you know, Calvin Smith, you know, what I mean, and and he happens to have a disease, you know, like this, just being human and, and, and recognizing humanity in people. I mean, that would be a miracle in and of itself. But we're dealing with the, yeah. humanity. Let's just start there. Just seeing 
Another one thing that I um, think is worth underscoring that you said is, um, and Dr. Kamara Jones, she says this a lot in her talks that inaction in the face of need is just as racist and it's just, it is a form of racism, just yes. like he's overt. And so inaction, complicity, indifference, denial, all of those things are yeah. also racism, are yeah. forms of racism yeah. um, that we shouldn't get. And yes. more specifically, white people, people in power, you can, we can't get comfortable. We can't get yeah. comfortable seeing an indifference or denial yes. or on a well, you know bystander esque, right? That's why you know a, a, a large segment of us got really upset with Joe Biden, you know. And and again, rightfully so. Joe Biden, what? I'm gonna be controversial for a second. Got to get real, y'all. <laughs> what he said, if I said mm -hmm. it would hold more weight and it's probably you know even tongue-in-cheek is a little bit accurate he mm -hmm. can never ever ever say he can't mm -hmm. form his mouth to say that and if you understand race relations you know why but you know and and, and he got comfortable and we got comfortable with him we got comfortable with him we started talking about oh this picnic block this 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 imaginary picnic that we invite all these nice white people yeah, to, right? Everybody made it to the cookout. <laughs> right. Everybody, you know, your invitation to cookout has been revoked and all this kind of stuff, right? Joe can't come to the cookout no more. But in reality, like, he should not, he, he should be able to recognize that that's not his role to play. That's not for him to say. You know what I mean? And it's, he doesn't have to pander to the black community either. The, the like, I mean, I look at, and, and Bill Clinton had a lot of faults. You know, I mean, the, the, the crime bill, all the, the super predator. All that stuff is his, and he has to own that. But one thing he did not do was pander to African-Americans in, in a way that, like, you know, was like, he was he was as authentic as I've seen a politician be, and just in terms of recognizing the humanity of a different culture of people. And that's that's what we need. You know, the, the thing about Joe Biden is, is, and I don't, I hate to get so political. I, I'm probably going to get in trouble at work, but I don't care. Uh, the, thing, <laughs> the thing about Joe Biden timely, is. Timely, it's timely. The conversation is, is timely, folks. He is essentially a reformed racist. That's if you look at the history of Joe Biden, and and you know, I mean, I believe that people can change if they have a desire in their heart. He's undergone a lot of trauma in his life with kids and other kind of things. You know what I mean? He's he probably is a different person than he was. But let's make no mistake about it. He was somebody that you know was arm in arm with the Jesse Helms's of the world. You know what I mean? Like he he was complicit. He wasn't just an apathetic racist. He was somebody that was, he was pretty, you know, he was in there with them. You know what I mean? The blessing, all these kind of things. He had strong opinions about that. And, you know, our elders and people who study these things don't forget those things. And mm -hmm. so, you know, when he says something like what he said on The Breakfast Club, oh, that, that's, that's, boom, that puts all those things right back in the forefront of your mind. And, it, you know, it's just, it's, it's, it's again, he can't he he can't say that, but to tell a person in privilege they can't say something is like oppressing them. You know what I mean? And and to his credit or to the people behind his credit, they pretty much backed away from that statement as as, as best as they could, you know. But it's there. And once once a word has been said, it's it's out there. You can't take it back. No no takesies backsies, no none of that stuff. It's not how life works. So I don't know, man. It's, and, and, you know, we were already on a fragile balance with a lot of people who were like, well, I'm not going to vote, blah, 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 blah. Now those people definitely are, you know, I mean, like that, that did it for a lot of them. And, 
again. That's a shame because we're cutting off our nose to spite our face. We're throwing the baby out with the bathwater. And, you know, uh, take a chance. You know, what, what do you have to lose? Well, coronavirus 2020. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, depression 2021 and onward. You know, uh, uh, seven conservatives on the Supreme Court. You know, um, continued police brutality and, and very fine people on both sides. You know, mm-hmm. that's what we have to lose. And that's that's quite a bit, especially, you know, when you are directly affected by it. Mm-hmm. That's, um, I'm actually glad you brought up the um, Joe Biden thing. We're going to wrap up in a bit. But I do think that a lesson learned there that in, in connection back to this work is that in as much as we are all having conversations about race, race relations, all of our role in these conversations are not equal. And so so there are conversations that Black people can actually, can have intra-group yeah. about the things that we need to work through, understand about ourselves, policy. And there are conversations that white people, white leaders, specifically with positional and social power and privilege, that you just, you can be, that you can have, that you all can have on your own accord, that lend itself to progress, justice, equity, that shouldn't involve being critical of the people who are most impacted by the systems you benefit from. And so I'm just gonna put that out there because exactly I think it's worth stating that and we can absolutely, as, as communities of color, and even in, as subcultures, black community more specifically, have conversations about ourselves in, with regard to policy, and how and, and why we should vote and who we should support and, and all of it and, and, and everything that's going on. And that's okay for it to be intra-group conversation. Um, and, you know, part of owning one's privilege, especially in a system of racism, is knowing how to show up, um, when not to talk, what to say, when to just kind of amplify. Right. And all of that. And it's a shame that's, that the that's you know, politicians don't don't know that it's that's that crazy. being that ally you talked about that's that's being an ally ally is not the same thing as a teammate it's not the same thing as it's even not the same thing as a stakeholder an ally <laughs> just that somebody that yeah. is a support system that so then goes back to their role and helps in that capacity i'm with it we're gonna wrap up um because we covered a lot today and i certainly don't want to take away from the birthday festivities rest um, i'm you good this is this is added to it um, um, I wonder, as a final question, because this is something that's passionate that I'm passionate about, just really as um individuals in this work, ensuring that we're all like filling our cup, making yes. sure that we're like taking care of ourselves, making sure that like even even as we are like hypersensitive and aware of all the things that are going around us, like how do yes. we make sure, or how do you make sure that you, um, how do you prioritize like just sort of your self care and all of that as you continue to do the work that you're doing so my biggest priorities are number one to myself so making sure that i remain healthy and taking precautions to stay healthy be eating right taking vitamins uh, I, I suck at exercising but you know being physically active as much mm-hmm. as i can so that part of it uh i i like to and and there's a lot of well-meaning but toxic memes out there talking about, you know, I'm going to remember who reached out to me during this period of time, right? I, I try to reach out to people as best I can, you know what mm-hmm. I mean? And support them and look out for them and vice versa. You get a lot of that love back, you know, and I'm not going to be all things to all people, but I do want to reach out and I talk to my mother every day, you know, mm-hmm. I, I, I 
I talked to my, my sisters, I talked to my, my nephew, I talked to my, uh, to, you know, a lot, select individuals daily. And then there are other people that I reach out to as, you know, as needed in social media, you know, I give people enough of me, you know, but I also keep some of that for myself, you know what I mean? And then being compassionate, you know, and, and spreading the word about wearing masks, what other people can do for me, just go out, just wear a mask properly. That's, if you do that, that alone, if you insist on being out in public, doing that alone will help drop the transmission rate, you know, to a manageable level so that an ICU bed can be available for those that need it, as well as the person with a heart attack. Because those people still getting sick, too. You know what I mean? So, you know, being being thinking about your fellow man uh, and all those kind of things. So, you know, filling my cup, making sure I'm taken care of because I can't take care of anybody if I'm not well rested, if I'm not in, in a good mind state, you know, decompressing in a, in a healthy way. Um, you know, all those kind of things and then reaching out to the people I can reach out to and then spreading the message of, uh, of, of you know, being compassionate for others, i.e. wearing a mask. Those are the things I do. I love it. That rest part, self-care part is real. I've been following this Instagram account, Instagram account called the Nat Ministry and they pretty much posit that um, rest in and of itself is like a form of like resistance, especially in this work. Like, you know yeah. what, I'm a cause and you know, yesterday was the holiday weekend, and at first I had these things I wanted to accomplish. I was like, oh, I'm going to take a walk. I'm going to do this, da, da, da. And I was like, nah. Yeah. My, my son was away, y'all. My son was with his dad. I didn't have no care. I, I sat in the house. I was, yeah. I was like, this, yeah. is work. This, is pro- this is productivity. Me yeah. eating my food, watching my Netflix. Yeah. And just want to be in. That was self-care. Yeah. That's what self-care looked like for me yesterday. That's that's dope. I really have enjoyed this conversation. I'm I'm glad that this is a part of my birthday today. Uh, uh, this is this is dope. We gonna have this to ask Stevie Wonder's happy birthday to the recording here. Um, <laughs> thank you so much, Dr. Calvin Smith, for joining us on the Queen's Live, and um, it has certainly certainly been a pleasure. Thank you so much. I enjoyed it.